Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we meditate on this passage that you would bless those meditations. Father, I pray as I preach this passage that your spirit would work through my mouth. Lord, I pray that you would bless us, that you would help us to examine ourselves, that we would... Uh, be sanctified and conformed to the image of your Son by this means of grace, by the preached word. Lord, so, so guide us. May your spirit be active now. And I pray that you would help us to fight against our flesh and our body that will tempt us to think on other things and to be distracted And so, Father, I pray that we would be actively engaged in listening. Help us in this task, Father. We are weak. We need your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So last week, we we were in chapter 6. This is the 10th sermon on chapter 6. It's a long chapter, 71 verses is not uh, your normal length, that's above average. And uh, so 10 sermons in this, but we focused on 60 and 61, the statement by some followers of Jesus, that the, the statements Jesus was making about being the bread of heaven and eating his flesh and drinking his blood were hard words. That they were very difficult things to hear and accept. I've explained what Jesus meant by those words that we must ingest Christ by faith, right? And so we continue with the, this exchange between Jesus and those 
that were stumbled by his words, those that found those words very difficult. After asking them if he, uh, if his teaching caused them to stumble, Jesus then gives them an example that is even more remarkable than what he has already been talking about. Right? He referring to his forthcoming ascension into heaven. He says, "What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before?" Right? And we're like, okay, how does how does this relate? Uh, what's going on here? Remember, they had been objecting to the fact that he said he was the bread of heaven. They'd been objecting from the fact that he said he was the bread of heaven and that he came down from heaven. They think he's just Mary and Joseph's precocious son. And Jesus takes their objection and says, get this. Not only am I from heaven, but I will ascend back to heaven and it will be visible and it will be seen by you. How apoplectic will you be then? How many objections will you have then? How, how intense will your unbelief be at that point when you, when you see me ascend into heaven? Your unbelief will be even more astonishingly terrible. Right? Think back on chapter 3 of, of John's gospel. Jesus said something similar to Nicodemus, didn't he? After speaking of, of the new birth and confronting Nicodemus for not knowing as a teacher of Israel what he ought to know, Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Right? You don't believe with things that should be easily understood. How in the world are you going to believe with things that are going to be difficult to understand, those heavenly things? And then he says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so that same dilemma is happening here in chapter 6. Jesus has told the, the, these people who followed him, the people who were fed by the bread and um, fish, he's told them earthly things. He's said things like, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. I'm and, and they, can, they can even understand that. How in the world will they understand and accept heavenly doctrines? Right? You can't start with the heavenly. Uh, you can't start with the heavenly. You start with milk, not meats. And these people have been given milk, and they complain that this is, these are hard words. Right? They're, being, they're being given milk. The milk is the astonishing statements about him being flesh, food, and drink, right? And then he lays on them, wait until you see me ascend into heaven. And it's like, <sighs> note also that both, both times Jesus mentions his ascension in chapters 3 and chapter 6. Also in chapter 1, we could go back there, he calls himself some, a name. He calls himself the Son of Man, right? It's... He calls himself the Son of Man. It's recorded over 80 times in the Gospels. This is his most commonly used self-designation. Uh, calls himself the Son of Man. 
Um, why does he do that? Why, why did he use that name here with these unbelieving followers? Uh, Jesus uses that name because that name was revealed many ages before he came to earth by the prophet Daniel. He's borrowing and importing everything from that prophecy in Daniel when he uses this name, Son of Man. Um, in the book of Daniel, we learn that this Son of Man is the expected Messiah, right? And that his kingdom, this Son of Man, will have a kingdom that will be everlasting, an unending kingdom, right? So when Jesus is using this, he is selecting it very purposefully and importing all of that forward-looking glory. Here's what it says in Daniel. This is Daniel 7, 13, and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so when Jesus uses, it's not a, it's, this is not to diminish who Jesus is. I mean, son of man seems like he's saying, I'm just a man like you guys. No, 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 no. This is like the opposite of that. This is him exploding his importance, right? The son of man means that he is the Messiah. He is the king of a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And the Jews who he's speaking to here would have known that. They would have known this reference. There's no way they would not have known the centerpiece of the book of Daniel. They would have been familiar with the prophecy that it was a prophecy of the Messiah that they expected to come for their deliverance. Jesus knows this, and so when he calls himself the Son of Man, he's sweeping all that prophecy up and saying, that's me. That is me. I am the promised one. I am the Messiah. I am the king of an eternal kingdom. And so, the people are unimpressed. The people are unimpressed by it, even annoyed. They're unimpressed by what he's saying here, right? That, that's a heavenly thing he's revealing, right? And they're unimpressed. They're annoyed. They just see Mary's son here, and, and they can't accept earthly things from his mouth. And now he sets before him them these, these heavenly things, both his name, the Son of Man, and the mention of his ascension. And what will their response be? Is it, is it that mention of the heavenly, the greater works, the more glorious parts of Jesus' future will sway their minds? Will this be the information they need to finally bow their knees to him? Will this be the thing that puts them over the edge? Well, what does Jesus say next? He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. He's reiterating what he said before, and we've heard him say before, uh, verse 37, right? If you look at verse 37, you remember what he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. 
He asserts that the Spirit must work before someone is willing to follow Jesus Christ. The Spirit makes a dead soul alive, right? The, 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 um, we are blind, we are deaf, we are dumb, we are dead before the Spirit gives life. The flesh and her works are not only insignificant, they're actually nothing. They have no power. As much as we would like to give them power, they profit, Jesus says, nothing. They profit nothing. All throughout this gospel, this has been the uniform theme. The Spirit has to give life. That has been constantly coming up in what John has said. Nicodemus must be born again. You and I must be born again. God must first work. We can't make the lights click on. We just can't make the lights click on. In fact, look now what this passage says. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. He's saying, for this reason I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. I mean, it's all there. But... But there are so many people who have heard, you know, repeatedly these things and reject them. They've read their scriptures, they've gone to church, they've heard the scriptures preached. It says that the spirit must work, that the flesh profits nothing, right? That, that God must do this, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And there's so many people who still get upset about this doctrine of predestination. They, they call it an invention of a 16th century Frenchman. It's an invention of the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. It is all over the place. I mean, we're in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, and how many times have we come across this? It keeps coming up, right? And, and yet people, people deny that the Scriptures teach this doctrine of predestination and believe that it's merely the words of man. But I ask you, how can we come away from this passage thinking that a person's salvation depends upon their will? And not God's will. Better yet, how, you know, how can we come away thinking that we have the power to bend God's hand and grant what He alone possesses? No one can come to me unless it has been granted Him from the Father. <laughs> and all the, the hardy Calvinists here nod their heads, right? And say, Amen. That's true. That's true. All through this passage, the people have reacted to Jesus' words, which are spirit and life, though with unbelief. And Jesus' response has not been that of, say, Charles Finney. I mean, if Jesus had imitated Charles Finney, Finney would have then gone on to tell the crowds, in the face of unbelief, Finney would have gone on to tell the crowds of people that they didn't believe because they weren't trying hard enough. Jesus never does that. Jesus says, you're unbelieving and 
Well, no one can come to the Father, you know, unless the Spirit works. No one can come to me unless the Father draws you. That's his consist, And we're like, that's a betrayal of all kinds of, of evangelistic work. I mean, that's a betrayal of, of American evangelical. That's a betrayal of, of, of uh, free will, right? That's a betrayal of everything that we consider precious, right? You imagine Jesus telling dead, helpless people, you haven't tried hard enough? That's what Charles Finney did. That's what modern evangelists do. Now, Jesus' consistent response to unbelief has been a simple acknowledgement of the sovereignty of his Father and the salvation of man. The people crowded around Jesus uh, ask for a sign so that they may believe. And Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. No sign for you. We've got this worked out. Here's how it's going to work. It's not going to work the way you think it's going to work. You're not going to get a sign. The Father's going to draw. And you'll come. If he draws you. The people crowded around Jesus are grumbling that he said he was the bread of heaven and Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Right? The people crowded around Jesus, they're grumbling about what he said that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood and Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And then he says, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. I mean, in this passage, three times he said this in the face of unbelief. And so in, the fa- in, the, in, in unbelief, Jesus' response is one of speaking of his, of his sovereign will, of his Father's sovereign will. Ought we to do the same in the face of unbelieving family members, unbelieving children, unbelieving parents, Unbelieving co-workers, unbelieving friends. Should that be our response as well? Well, of course it should be. Right? If, if we make a determination about whether someone will come to the Lord based upon what they currently believe and their current sins, well, then who can be saved? But if we make our determination about whether someone will come to the Lord based upon God's Sovereign and irresistible will. Well, no one is beyond salvation then. No one. Not a single person is beyond salvation. God's power is so great that, think of this. God's power is so great that it is only his enemies that he draws to himself. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. The only person God has ever saved is the one who is terminally ill. Right? It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. The only person God has ever saved is the person who hates God. Right? And the, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, 
engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The only person God has ever saved is the person who is dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. The only person God has ever saved is the one who has no capacity at all to save himself. God only saves his hateful enemies, the mortally sick, the dead, the desperately estranged, and sinful. He saved you, no? And you were all of those things. Right? We were those things. What makes you any better than your unbelieving, ungrateful, unloving, unmoved friends who hate Jesus Christ? Do you, do you really think it was something about you that forced God to apply the precious blood of his son to you? Do you really think there was something that God saw and was like, oh, oh, I guess I owe it to him? No, 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 no. It was his free grace. It was his free grace. It was his sovereign drawing. It was his irresistible will, right? And if... And if it was not that, then your faith is a figment of your inflated ego. You think you've commended yourself to God. You think God, you have put God in your debt, God Almighty, in your debt. So, dear brothers and sisters, who resists God's will? No one. That truth should be an encouragement to you as you continue, right, to call your family members and your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors to faith in Jesus Christ. God has no obstacles. God has no difficulties, right? Go on sharing the good news of the free grace of God. He will draw every single person he desires. He will do it. He is guaranteed to do it. Why? Because he said he would. That's why. And he does not lie. It's, it's mission impossible, but with God, with a God for whom all things are possible. And so, rest in this. To make the, sovereign, to make the sovereignty of God into like a boogeyman, it's just so hopeless. It's so sad. You know, that people would be offended by the doctrine that is the basis of their salvation. It's astonishing. Now, verse 66 comes, and we read, after these words, right? After, and, and I think when it says, well, it, here's what it says. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. As a result of what? As a result of Jesus' teaching, um, those who had been following him, perhaps it was just for physical bread, and perhaps it was just, you know, fun to have solidarity with a group of people for a time. They, they, 
you know, they, they liked hanging out with people and this was a spectacle. Those people determine they've had enough. Their profession of faith had been superficially, it had been especially thin, and they wanted to go to church for reasons other than the forgiveness of sins found in, in Jesus Christ. Um, Ryle says, all blossoms do not come to fruit. And what may look for a time like a genuine faith in Christ, if, if not from God himself, will go this way. It will go this way. Uh, Ryle again says, many may have feelings, desires, convictions, resolutions, hopes, joys, sorrows in religion, and yet never have the grace of God. They may run well for a season and bid fair to reach heaven, and yet break down entirely after a time, go back to the world, and end like Demas, Judas Iscariot, and Lot's wife. But don't let this discourage you that there are those who return to the world and walk away from Christ. Again, Ryle says, the sneering infidel who defends his unbelief by pointing at those who fall away must find some better argument for their example. He forgets that there will always be counterfeit coin where there is true money. God has told us this. There's always going to be counterfeits in the midst of the genuine article, right? I mean, go through the money supply, uh, the American money supply, and there, you're going to find counterfeit bills mixed into the real thing. Counterfeit coins, counterfeit bills, uh, the wheat and the tares, Jesus said. The wheat and the tares. And so even though we see what seems to be people falling away from the faith, remember that they're counterfeits. Again, don't let those who depart from the church, who leave behind Christ, who claim Christ and then turn away, be a discouragement to you. Jesus taught this. Many are called, but few are chosen. Some hear the calling and don't receive the choosing. Right? That, that doctrine bothers many people. I mean, it does bother the natural man. I can, I can imagine that somebody who doesn't have the Spirit would be like, that is mean, that is terrible, that is, uh, that is God being hateful. One would expect that those who live during a time when we do not declare winners and losers at children's sports tournaments, that our sense of what is fair is pretty skewed. Right? We want to give everybody our participation trophy and a seat in heaven. When we begin to judge God according to our sense of fairness, well then, we, we have a crisis when we see people abandoning Christ. That becomes a crisis. This is, this is when we need to remember our theology. We need to yield to God and His will. We need to step back and refrain from from making God impotent, right? Ungodding God. That's what we need to stop there. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And he will harden whom he hardens. He will harden whom he desires. That's what is fair. That's what is fair. And our sense of fairness is is derived from a corrupt mind and not from a holy 
minds like our Lord's. So don't let those who fall away shake your faith or cause you to adjust your theology or cause you to stumble in any way. Let it cause you to cry out to God, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? As you feel the tug. Right? And, and, and then let it, let it lead you to be in awe of the calling with which you have been called in Christ. Right? You should be in awe. You should be so thankful. Never... Uh, Never one to let a moment pass without training his men. Jesus then turns to the twelve. He turns to the, the inner core, his, his twelve men, the apostles. Men we know who had sacrificed to be with him. Who had left their nets, who had left their families, right? And had gone to follow Jesus. And, and so Jesus turns to the twelve as these crowds are walking away from Jesus. And he asks them a pointed question. It's the sort of question that we would hesitate to ask, right? Because we would just not have the courage to do it. We would just want to, to slink away and let the awkward moment pass and Go get a latte and kick up our feet on a leather chair, right? But he, he goes to his men and he says, you do not want to go away also, do you? Now we know he knew the answer. We already know he knew the answer. How do we know that? Verse 64 makes that clear. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew who would stay and who would go. He had a divine knowledge of these men's hearts. He had a divine knowledge of these men's hearts. He knew them. He knew that 11 would stay and one would go. So why does he ask the question? Why does he ask this question of them? He's giving them an opportunity to confess and confirm their faith, right? He's providing them with this opportunity to confess their faith. Calvin says that and then draws some application. Here's what Calvin says. He says, when Jesus asks the apostles if they also wish to go away, he does so in order to confirm their faith. For by exhibiting to them himself that they may remain with him, he likewise exhorts them not to become the companions of apostates. And indeed, if faith be founded on Christ, it will not depend on men and will never waver, though it should see heaven and earth mingling. We ought also to observe this circumstance, that Christ, when deprived of nearly all his disciples, retains the twelve only. By such examples, every believer is taught to follow God even though he should have no companion. All of the people who came out to be with Jesus, who had been following him for weeks, walked away and only 12 are left. And Jesus is teaching them that the, the world may look to be going after every idol, every pagan thing, it may look like the Christian faith is vanishing, that, that Christendom is an impossible dream, but that does not indicate anything about the failure of the mission of God. 
does not indicate anything about it. That does not say anything about the strength of God. You may be the only believer in your family. Right? And there may be times when there, that is a great burden to you. Right? But it is a burden that Jesus himself endured as his own people abandoned him. Right? It is a burden that the apostles endured and the persecuted church endured and still endures. I mean, think of the people who are being killed today, how forsaken of God they must feel. The attitude we must have is that of the apostle Peter. In response to Jesus' question, Peter says, oh, praise God, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To whom shall we go? A glorious Peter, right? Impetuous Peter. Peter, the one whose emotions are just right out front. Peter, the one who answers the question that, that no one wanted to answer, says, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? And, and you have to ask yourself that same question. Because all of you are being taught about Jesus Christ right now. All of you are being taught about who he is, what he's done, what, who he said he was, what he is indeed. And all of you are being tempted by the devil just as Eve was in the garden, right? To doubt God and to go after some other idol that you think will be better for you, will serve you better, will be more, uh, will lead to more victories and in, in in uh, your best life now, right? To whom shall we go? Jesus asked them, you don't want to go too, do you? Peter says, to whom shall we go? Shall we turn to our elected officials? I mean, we laugh about it, but how many people put their hope in elected officials? How many people have their government as an idol? An all-powerful, in their minds, savior. Shall we turn to university professors who used to profess truth, right? But now profess hatred of truth. Shall we, shall we turn to our scientists who rather than rather than making observations, tell us what to believe. Shall we turn to Antifa, Antifa and, and the woke mob? We'll give your life meaning. We'll give you something to do on the weekends. Right? It will allow you to enter into the history of class struggle and give your life meaning. Shall we turn to uh, Aristotle, Plato, 
philosophy. The thoughts of man, the most profound thoughts of man, the highest order of thinking of man. Should we turn to that? Should we turn to Elon Musk? Because the earth's dying, Mars apparently, though dead, will be where we live. I mean, he's a savior. He'll be our savior. What about, let's turn to Karl Marx. Let's, let's again, enter into that, that, that class struggle. Let's enter into that, um, that secular absolutism. Shall we turn to Buddha? Shall we turn to Confucius? Shall we turn to the, the, the God that's in the box on the floor of your Chinese takeout place? You've seen it, you know, little sacrifices to whatever God it is with a burning candle and an orange. How about LeBron James? Let's turn to LeBron James and, and practice mindfulness. Right? Mindfulness. He has an app. You can download it. Shall we turn to environmentalism? Shall we turn to Greenpeace? Because what we see is all there is, and it is God we must serve. And if we don't save the earth, we don't save ourselves. Right? What about, um, let's turn to astrophysics and Evolutionary biologists. How about we turn to the devil and demons? How about we just turn to ourselves and our emotions? How about we turn to Facebook? How about we turn to social media? How about we turn to um, entertainment. How about we turn to hobbies? To whom shall we go? Right? To whom shall we go? What power do you are you tempted to turn to? What power? What thing, what idol are you, are you, do you want to turn to? That in your cost-benefit analysis outweighs what Jesus, the Son of God, offers to you. Do you want to turn to some mortal man, some temporary power, some half-baked theory? Do you want to entrust yourself to man? Or do you want to entrust yourself to God? Do you want to trust only that which you see? Or follow by faith the one who cannot be seen. You see, I think that's where it gets hard for many of us. Is it, we just want to see our gods. But God is not seen. No man has ever seen God. And yet Jesus was seen. He is the image of the invisible God. Right? Will you hedge your bets and put some trust in Jesus and something else? 
think that's the American way. Hedge your bets, right? Ensuring yourself that Jesus didn't mean what he said about not being able to serve two masters. We'll just disregard that part, but I'm going to put some insurance in this area, insurance in that area. Peter knows which way he will go by God's grace. Peter knows it. Oh, he will stumble. I mean, think about Peter's future. Think about what what is ahead for Peter. Here he's saying, to whom shall we go? And in a few short months, right, he will be denying Christ before his servant girl. He will be so concerned about his own reputation that he will deny that he even knows Jesus with curses. But the confession he makes here is the confession of every true Christian. Having been born again by the Spirit, they hold true to Jesus until the end. They don't concern themselves with the cost because every other thing upon which they might put their trust in is of the creation rather than of the Creator. I mean, brothers and sisters, you should talk to your children like this. You should say, children, if you ever see me waver and turn my back upon Christ, you should not follow me. Do not follow me, right? If, if everybody in this church were to be seduced by the world and turn away from Christ, you should confess your faith as Peter did, beginning with that glorious question, Lord, to whom shall we go? If everybody in here walks away and you're the only one, you should say, no, there's nothing else. To whom shall I go? Your wife and your children may may walk away and you should stand firm in the faith. Why is Peter not willing to go to anyone else? Because Jesus... And Jesus alone, by his own admission, has words of eternal life because he has put his faith and trust in Jesus, having come to know that he is the Holy One of God. And you may be tempted to give up your faith in Christ and find your home in the world. You may be tired of defending your faith and having pagans point out your hypocrisy and your sins. That is a painful thing. It happens to every Christian. We still sin. But to have pagans pointed out bitterly hurts and we just get sick of it you may be bored with god's word and prayerless you may have no joy in your salvation but at the end of the day when you have weighed all the promises of god with the false promises made to you by the world you should be left saying to yourself lord to whom shall i go you have words of eternal life The word of God says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Seems like a whole heap of disappointment following Jesus right now, doesn't it? But you will not be disappointed. Trust me. You're living in a fraction of an inch of the beginning of an eternal life you will not be disappointed. And remember this when you are tempted to leave your first love. 
1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.